You're listening to the Activist Investing Today live briefings with the deals Ron Oral, in which we delve into the finer workings of activist hedge funds and their efforts to drive M&A and other changes at targeted companies. Our guest today is Gregory Schill, an associate professor of law at the University of Iowa College of Law. His work has been published by the UCLA Law Review, the Tulane Law Review, the Harvard International Law Journal, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, and he holds a JD from Harvard Law School, a BA from Columbia University, and an MA from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Thank you, Professor Schill, for taking a little time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, so I wanted to start talking about what appears to be a trend of uh, male activist hedge fund managers targeting women CEOs. And, uh, you know, it's pretty clear. I, I'd say 99% of the activist hedge fund managers out there are males. And, um, uh, but meanwhile, there's a large contingent of women CEOs. And we're seeing a lot of interesting anecdotal examples of, uh, of uh, at, you know, male activists targeting women CEOs. We, of course, have Carl Icahn's battle against Xerox's Ursula Burns. Uh, the Xerox broken two after his campaign. Starboard Values, famous Jeff Smith campaign against Yahoo CEO Marissa Meyer. Uh, Verizon bought Yahoo after his campaign and she was ousted. Mick McGuire's campaign against Buffalo Wild Wings CEO Sally Smith. McGuire won his battle, got a minority slate, and Sally Smith announced her resignation immediately. And then, of course, was Greenlight, uh, Greenlight's David Einhorn targeting General Motors, which he was his effort was crushed by uh, CEO Mary Barra. And so, you know, it's a kind of a mixed bag for activists in terms of the big, the big activist campaigns. So I wanted to just uh, get your take, Professor Schill, and uh, see if you could give us a sense of what's going on here. I wanted to also just very quickly run, uh, talk about a recent study by three academics led by University of Alabama Associate Professor Vishal Gupta, which concluded that male CEOs were targeted by an activist 6% of the study period versus not 9% of the time when the CEO was female. So male CEOs were targeted 6% of the time, female CEOs 9.4% of the time they, they concluded after aggression. So I don't know, Professor Schill, what do you think is going on here? Are, we, are activists going out and targeting female-led companies uh, because they perceive that the women CEOs are weak? Or what, what do you think uh, are some different factors that could be going on here? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's possible, and we, we can't rule that out. Um, I guess, you know, there are two possible levels of bias that might be coming into play here. Um, so the first, you know, idea that, that you've kind of voiced here is that maybe activist hedge funds, which are run by men, and, and let's be real, you know, I used to work on Wall Street as well. It's, they're run by men. They're also, they have a kind of macho persona Absolutely. Um, as well. No question. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, the idea is that they're, they're targeting this small subset of Fortune 500 CEOs that happen to be women, um, you know, because they are women. And that's possible. I don't think, based on the data I've seen, I don't think we can rule that out. At the same time, um, in other words, that would be bias at the fund level. Um, I think it's also possible that there is a, uh, a different form of bias that is coming into play here uh, earlier in the process. Uh, and that's bias at the company level. Mm -hmm. There's this concept of the glass cliff um, been fleshed out by a number of academics um, starting back in 2005 uh, with a study by Michelle Ryan and Alexander Haslam 
um, the, the first paper to coin the term. And, and the basic idea is that when companies are in trouble, they tend disproportionately to select female CEOs. Uh, it's not that they select female CEOs, you know, more often than male CEOs at that level, uh, or sorry, at that stage, but they're just more likely to do that. And so what you find when you look at the population of female CEOs um, at public companies is that they tend to be disproportionately helming uh, companies that are in trouble. And so there may be, you know, kind of a confounding effect here where we've got an omitted variable. If you look only at the gender of the fund manager and the gender of the CEO, you know, what you're omitting is the process that determines who becomes the CEO of a given company. Um, so I think, you know, I think that's a possibility as well. Let's, uh, let me just uh, uh, get into that a little bit, which is, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating thing because it's obvious that activist investors target companies that are undervalued and often per, uh, performing poorly. Uh, I think you had mentioned to me before that, for example, Yahoo was in 20 years of decline when uh, Marissa Mayer came in as the CEO there. So it was kind of a tough job to to helm that ship and, um, and the, you know, income starboard values, Jeff Smith with his campaign there. So, uh, so mm-hmm. I guess, are you suggesting in these studies, the glass ceiling suggests are, are, are suggesting that male, uh, that uh, these companies are bringing women don't, ha- I mean, what is it behind that? Is that, uh, that women don't have a lot of opportunities or they have fewer opportunities than men. And so they're willing to take on the positions mm-hmm. of CEOs of troubled companies. Yeah, so there are a couple of different theories for how it comes to be the case that women, you know, head up companies that are in trouble disproportionately. Um, One is that um, tracking gender norms or gender expectations generally, um, you know, there's an idea that it's a safer choice to pick a woman. She's she's more likely to or less likely to make risky decisions that might, for example, land the company in bankruptcy. Um, That's that's one explanation. Another is that <clears throat> there are, um, you know, a, someone who would be a strong male CEO candidate for a given company, mm-hmm. um, they would also be a strong candidate for another company. Uh, right. They're likely to have more opportunities. And so if a, you know, if, if a not ideal opportunity comes knocking at the door, they can turn that down in confidence, knowing that another opportunity will come around the corner. Women don't have that same confidence uh, because female CEOs are still um, a tiny minority of public company CEOs. And so they, they jump at the opportunity. So in other words, there's, there's an effect in the kind of labor supply pool. Um, so I, I think those are both um, possibilities. Um, so the idea Ellen is that, Powell is another. Mm-hmm. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say Ellen Powell is, is another you know example of, of somebody coming in uh, to Reddit in that case. Um, she was under attack almost immediately. She lasted about eight months. A lot of people thought she was treated unfairly. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's a slightly different case than, say, Marissa Mayer, where um, I think the company was in much deeper trouble by the time she took over. And, um, you know, she, I think she was given kind of an impossible charge uh, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, so it seems like, uh, you know, the, it's, it, it may not be the activists or tar- male activists are targeting, uh, you know, women that they perceive to be weak as CEOs. They're just target finding the companies, you know, in their, uh, in their, uh, that, that fit their characteristics, of undervalued, poorly performing companies. Maybe that's a company that can be mm-hmm. split up or sold. And that just so happens that these women are, are the only ones that are brought into, uh, 
to, 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 to run those businesses. Um, and I, I was struck by another point that you made, which is uh, I wanted to see if you could flesh it out just very briefly. The, uh, the women are less likely to make risky decisions. So the, are you suggesting that, in, you know, there's, I guess, uh, some analysis that a company's board may be more willing to, that is a, a company that is troubled, may be more willing to bring in a female CEO because they may take less uh, less risky decision to do the hard work of fixing the business, whereas they're concerned that the male CEO might do something risky that could, uh, you know, uh, uh, cause a lot of trouble for the business. That's, that's right. And um, I'm getting this idea from uh, Allison Cook and Christy Glass, who are uh, business professors. Well, uh, Allison Cook is a professor at uh, Utah State Business School and, and Professor Glass is at sociology professor also at Utah State. They have a paper from 2013 called Above the Glass Ceiling, when when are women and racial slash ethnic minorities promoted to CEO? Mm-hmm. And they, um, you know, they find that uh, women and racial minorities are more likely than white men to be promoted CEO of weekly performing firms. Um, and also that when performance declines during their tenure, they're more likely to be replaced by white men, which is a phenomenon that they call the savior effect. Huh. I think there's there's a lot going on at the company level. Um, there's you know such that it's it's just difficult to isolate. Um, you know, Professor uh, Christine Shropshire, who's at Arizona State Business School, she has a paper um, called uh, "Glare of the Spotlight," um, where she looks at shareholder proposals specifically as opposed to activism generally um, okay. over a ten year period. She found that proposals disproportionately target companies that have female CEOs. Huh. And she controlled, you know, importantly, she controlled for firm characteristics like performance, industry, size, and so forth. But it's not clear to me that shareholder proposals would be the obvious um, vehicle for an activist that has maybe a gender-based motivation as opposed to like taking out the CEO or running a short slate and putting your own directors in, something like that. Um, there, definitely are a lot more, sure. uh, there definitely are a lot more shared proposals out there than, uh, than um, uh, activist hedge funds targeting women CEOs and products mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, yes, that's yes. a broader, uh, uh, broader statistics pool. But that is quite interesting. Um, anyways, I don't think we're going to solve the, the issue of uh, whether – what is the motivation behind male CEO, male activist hedge fund managers targeting women CEOs today? Uh, and I know if I were to uh, ask a bunch of male activists, uh, uh, you know, you know, why are you targeting this? Are you targeting this company because it's a female CEO? They'll definitely say that's not true. So um, <laughs> definitely something that kind of is, uh, has a has a you know below the surface element, and uh, lots of different factors are in play there. So, anyways, I wanted to just ask you about. Um, Another subject that I am fascinated about uh, that's kind of related uh, uh, is this uh, epic battle going on between companies and activist shareholders over who controls the votes at companies. And as mm-hmm. I dug into this more and more, I found that there's, uh, there's a large swath of U.S. corporations that give insiders, founders control of the vote. And, um, of course, last year this was um, – highlighted heavily with the IPO of Snap, which is the uh, company behind the popular Snapchat app uh, for your phones, um, where the founders, Evan Spiegel and Robert Murphy, set up a structure where with only non-voting shares, this kind of uh, caused the 
collectively the council of institutional investors and all the biggest institutional investors to freak out uh, and and start figuring out ways to stop this phenomenon from happening since they want to go in the opposite direction, which is one share, one vote for every share there, uh, you know, they should have a vote. And um, they targeted the big index providers, S&P, Russell, uh, FTSE Russell, uh, to, uh, to kind of convince them to, um, to just not allow those those companies those companies with non-voting shares to participate in their index indices, and they were successful. So now Snap is not able to participate in the three major uh, global the three of the major global index providers, uh, which was a huge blow because that's a big capital formation. And now we're not seeing any more Snap type non-voting share IPOs, but we are seeing a lot of companies go public with giving insiders control of the vote. And, uh, you know, f- for example, beyond, uh, I wrote about Roku the other day and its insider control structure. Mm-hmm. We have Blue Apron, GoPro, famously Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg controlling 60% of the vote and far less, I think, 16% of the shares. Uh, lots of other weird structures we have as well, like UPS, which gives employees and ex-employees control of the majority of the vote. And Hershey's, Hershey's the chocolate company gives a trust control of the votes and the Pennsylvania attorney general has a say in, in uh, that company as well. wanting to keep it in Pennsylvania where it's, it's, it's located now. So just uh, with that little background, I wanted to get your take uh, professor shell on, uh, you know, where are we moving with this? Uh, you know, I do expect to see more companies go public giving insiders some control of the vote. Do you agree with my thesis that we really won't see more of these non-voting share structures in the in the future because of the index providers and um i don't know if there's any sort of compromise idea that you think might be popular in the in the months to come. yeah it's it's a very hot issue right now as, as you know there's probably no hotter issue in corporate governance um at the moment um you know your guess is as good as mine about you know what the next three to five years we'll see i, I do think that the market has found a solution to the no vote problem uh, or to the extent that people perceive it as, as a problem, which I'm among those people. Um, you know, I think it makes sense to have, um, you know, to, to allow shareholders of public companies, some say in how they are governed. Um, and I find the arguments against that, you know, frankly, kind of weak, um, but how to design, you know, a structure that gives founders a lot of, or even, you know, majority control over an extended period. That's, still something that's being worked out, you know, much more, I think. Um, and there are a lot of ways to preserve that as you've alluded to without, um, actually having a no vote structure. So, you know, one model is, is a dual class system with low vote shares. Um, well, I, I guess I should back up to, you know, one model is a majority equity control where you have one share, one vote, but you have a majority of the votes. Um, yeah, the insider, the founder has a majority of the, uh, the yeah and the votes. Yeah, and an even yeah. proportionate. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's been around forever. Um, now there are uh, you know low vote dual class options, dual class uh, structures. Facebook being you know one example where Zuckerberg owns sixteen percent or so, and and yet controls sixty percent of the company. Snapchat's even more extreme. Um, the founders own. Uh, something around the same percentage in the teens, but they control like I think eighty-eight percent of the votes of Snap. Um, and uh, you know, so that's that's another alternative. I mean, I think Tesla 
is maybe a little more creative. Um, a lot of people don't realize that Tesla is a one share, one vote company on paper, meaning mm-hmm. um, they have that structure. They have one class of common stock, the end. And Elon Musk, you know, he controls about 22% of it. But what they also have is a number of provisions in their bylaws that require supermajority support in order to change important aspects of governance, like in order to add a director or change director compensation or approve a merger or acquisition. You have to have 66 and two thirds percent of the vote. So he owns 22%. That means in order to get something done, you know, that marginal 11% or so the shareholders, they hold, you know, an incredible amount of sway over the company. You have to get, you know, just, just a huge amount of uh, unanimity among the shareholders to overcome Elon Musk's um, stake when you combine the 22% with these bylaw provisions. And by the way, the bylaws for Tesla, they're not on the Tesla website. You have to actually go uh, to the SEC and pull them out of the proxy. And I think that's bad practice personally. Although yeah, it's actually, that's a, fascinating, uh, point to, that's a fascinating point you bring up because I know that the Investor Advisory Committee at the Securities and Exchange Commission has a proposal and that they're working on to try to convince the, the SEC to increase improved disclosure of insider votes and exactly the structure. They brought an example of Nike, mm-hmm. which, by the way, was, mm-hmm. you know, until, uh, was temporarily targeted by Bill Ackman's, uh, the activist at Pershing Square. But, um, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, it's very difficult to find out who controls the votes at, at companies that uh, they, they, they purposefully obfuscate that information. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a lot of pressure put on the Securities and Exchange Commission to uh, require companies to improve the disclosure of these voting structures uh, that are very uh, complicated. Um, but anyways, that's fascinating about Elon Musk. See, I guess on one level, people would think, oh, you know, he has 22% of the vote but uh, and, and 22% of the equity. So that's, you know, not as big a deal as Mark Zuckerberg, who owns 60% of the vote uh, through super voting shares and um, only 16% of the equity, one six. Uh, but in, but you point out that you have to look at the whole the whole big picture, which is that um, you know you need supervority vote to get a um, uh, of sixty six and two thirds percent of the shares to make big mm-hmm. changes such as drive mergers or declassify the board. I know that there was a there was one of these shareholder fourteen eight uh, proposals that you had, you had talked about earlier um, at uh, mm-hmm. at uh, at um, uh, Tesla that Tesla. Sought, mm-hmm. to, sought to declassify the board board. And you know that would have if, if they had gotten fifty one percent that just wouldn't have been good enough. And you know getting fifty one percent is yeah. much harder because Mark because Elon Musk owns twenty two percent of the vote. Is that basically it? Yeah, um, you know, that's, that's basically it. Both times um, the proposal was made, uh, most recently in 2016, it was also made in 2014 um, by McRitchie and, you know, uh, uh, McRitchie and um, you know, got about 42% of the vote. Mm-hmm. So if you subtract the 22% that Musk owns, um, it got a majority, you know, of the, of the vote of the non-insider uh, shareholders. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, it would have no impact um, even if it had gotten 51% of the total shares because of that collection of provisions in the bylaws. Um, that's created some legal problems for Tesla, as you may have seen recently that, you know, they, they're being sued over the Solar City acquisition. Um, that's where uh, Elon Musk went to the board and said, hey, we should buy Solar City, this company in which I'm the biggest investor, where I'm the chairman of the board. 
and where my cousin is the CEO. Um, <laughs> and they, they took no action. He pushed it again and a third time. Um, and then eventually they bought the company. Um, and the, the claim by the shareholders is that they overpaid, uh, sorry, underpaid. But in other words, it was basically a bailout mm -hmm. to Solar City. It was um, a financially troubled company, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were having, right, exactly. They, they were having uh, financial problems. And, and I think, you know, Musk had a, a, a decent business case for acquiring a solar panel company for his battery powered car company. But it wasn't, he didn't go to the board and say, let's buy a solar panel company. He went to the board and said, let's buy this company that is, uh, you know, in which I, ha I am the largest shareholder. Um, his cousin is the CEO, like you mentioned. <laughs> his cousin is the CEO. He's on the board. Right. So, um, anyway, Delaware, uh, Chancery Court, Judge, uh, Vice Chancellor Slights, just about two weeks ago, just greenlighted a lawsuit there. It got past the motion to dismiss stage. Oh. Um, you know, that's not definitive, but the claim there was that he has control. Um, right. Not voting control, not equity control, but he had a kind of complex form of control by virtue of the combination of his equity stake on the one hand and the supermajority provisions on the other. Um, so we'll see, you know, that's just proceeding past motion to dismiss. It's not like a holding that this constitutes control for Delaware law purposes, but. But um, it, it does but suggest it that the judge thinks that there could be some control uh, problems at uh, a Tesla. And um, anyways, mm -hmm. I'm sure short sellers there will be happy to, would be excited to see if that thing gets, uh, I don't know, broken up somehow. So, um, but yeah, no, that is fascinating. You definitely <laughs> have to look at the big holistic picture of the company, which obviously, you know, companies like Tesla don't like to, you know, put two and two, see that you put two and two together about the super majority voting bylaws and then how that relates to the percentage stake owned by the CEO. And, and uh, so it's important to kind of uh, look at the big picture of these companies. So anyways, Professor Schill, I really appreciate this. We've learned a lot today about uh, male activists targeting women CEOs and uh, this fascinating discussion about dual class companies and Tesla and insider control and definitely discussion that will continue to come. So I really appreciate you taking a little time to chat with us. Uh, this, you've been listening to Activist Investing Today, which is the uh, live briefings and podcasts with the deals, Ron Oral. So I appreciate you taking a little time. Thanks a lot, everyone.